Uh, this, does anyone know what this is? Anyone seen a picture of this before? This is a, one of Thomas Edison's inventions. And uh, it's, it's, a, it's a, basically a phonograph. It records sound. It's one of the first things ever to record sound. It was invented in 1878. And they found this uh, about 20, 30 years ago, and they didn't know how to play it. They didn't know how to use it. So like, they, they, it took them 10 years to figure out how to play this thing without destroying it. And uh, so it was actually played in 2012 for the first time in like 130 years. They figured out how to play this, and they listened. So this means that in 2012, they listened to the first ever recording of something recorded in 1878. So the voices of, of, of history. And uh, do you know what was recorded on, on this little thing? John, it's probably on a Reader's Digest somewhere. Come on, man. <laughs> Nothing? <laughs> well, the, the song that was, uh, that was in this is Mary Had a Little Lamb. Mary had a little lamb. Its fleece was white as snow, and everywhere that Mary went, the lamb was sure to go. It followed her to school one day, which was against the rule. It made the children laugh and play to see a lamb at school. And so the teacher turned it out. But still it lingered near and waited patiently about till Mary did appear. And the story goes that uh, Mary was the, the daughter of a, of a shepherd and uh, he was birthing lambs. Well, he was helping the sheep to birth lambs. And um, one of the lambs was dying and uh, she pleaded with her dad, please let me look after it. Please let me take care of it. And, uh, and he eventually he let her do that. And the little lamb was nursed back to health by Mary and so everywhere she went, this little lamb would follow her. And she could be anywhere out in the farm and she'd call it. And the little lamb would, would hear her voice, uh, hear its name being called, and would run for Mary. And there was a time she took it to school. She, stu- she stuck it down in her jacket and brought it to school one day. And she was asked to get up to read. And uh, the little lamb then got out. And this is where this little poem comes from then about Mary in uh, Sterling, Massachusetts. So apparently it's a true story. And uh, Ford, Henry Ford, fought for this to be a true story, apparently. He was pretty keen uh, that this would be real. But we're looking at the idea of Jesus being the shepherd and us hearing his voice and uh, following him. And what we're going to look at this morning is secure in the shepherd. Chapter 10 of John's Gospel, verse 22 to verse 42. And what we'll just do so far, the first to start off, is we're just going to set the scene a little bit in verse 22 to verse 23. Give us some background knowledge, helps us to understand what the text is all about. Now, everything that's been going on uh, since John chapter 7 up until John chapter 10 has been going on in the city of Jerusalem over the period of just two months, okay? So it's been, it's, from John 1 to chapter 6, it's been going through a period of about three years, sort of fast-forwarding through uh, the, the, the events in life of Jesus. Now we get to John 7 to John 10, and it slows everything right down and shows us more of what Jesus is doing and the conversations uh, that he's having. Two months within the city of Jerusalem, talking mostly recorded here to the religious leaders. Uh, In John chapter 7 to the first half of John 10, it was happening around the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles was around the 9th to the 16th of October this this year, if that helps. So it's around October time. And uh, this this conversation Jesus is having, in verse 22, it says it was the Feast of Dedication. And that's around the 18th to the 26th of December this year. So that just helps you map it out a little bit in your mind. October to December now. 
So it's, again, three years of Jesus' ministry. Now we're slowing right down to a period of about uh, two months. Last week, Jesus told the Jewish leaders, you're not the true leaders of God's people. You might think you are. You might have placed yourself up into that position, but you're not the leader of God's people. And then alluding to ancient prophecy, Jesus claims, I am the true door and I am the good shepherd. I am the leader of these people and I will lay down my life for, for them. So now it's winter, and the colder months have come to the city of Jerusalem. And it says in verse 2, or sorry, verse 23, that Jesus is in Solomon's porch. So he's in this, uh, this colonnade or this, uh, this portico, whatever words in your uh, translation there. And it's this little bit here over in the east. And it's, just, it's, just, it's basically a place for shelter. It's a place where lots of people go to, lots of people gravitate. There's lots of mingling and mixing around in Solomon's porch, especially in the, in the, in the colder months. People would, would often go there to talk and to meet and to go and worship God and then, and then spend a little time at Solomon's uh, porch. Now it says in verse 22, it's the feast of dedication. And that's also known, we would probably know that more as Hanukkah. Uh, and it's, it's not a feast in the Old Testament. So between the Old Testament and the New Testament, there's some new feasts come out into Israel. One of them is this feast of dedication, this feast of Hanukkah. Now, here's the thing. Nothing in the Bible is put there just just because, right? God never says, oh, just mention, but just sort of mention it's the Feast of Dedication. God places things in the Bible because they're significant to the meaning of the whole passage. So the very fact that this is happening at the Feast of Dedication is not a random situation. Otherwise, John wouldn't have recorded it being the Feast of Dedication. So it is significant that it's hap- this whole conversation we're going to look at happens around the same time as this celebration. So we're going to do a very quick history tour of what this feast is, just to get it in our minds, so we can kind of understand this conversation, because we're not going to get it if we don't. So, again, this is history. I love history, but I'm try- I've tried to boil it right down. Like, if I could tell you for a few hours, I would. I did church history. I'm like, oh, yes. And, you know, I'm going to try and do like a minute of history. Of, of Hanukkah, of the dedica- Feast of Dedication, okay? So, around 170 BC, so about, about 200 years before this conversation, the temple of, uh, of Jerusalem was looted by the Greeks. The Greeks had come, uh, I'm not going to get into it, but the Greeks had come and looted the temple, and Judaism was basically outlawed. You weren't allowed to practice Judaism. You weren't allowed to circumcise, which is a big part of Jewish custom and culture and religion. So all this is stopping about 200 years before Jesus. Then to top it all off, uh, the king of this part of Greece, Antiochus Epiphanes, he raised an altar to Zeus in the temple. All right, so there's, so there's, a, there's a Zeus altar in the temple of Jerusalem, the temple to God, and he had pigs sacrificed on the altar. And if, you know your, if you know your Old Testament, that is not good. You do not touch the pigs. We do not eat the pigs. We don't look at the pigs. And we certainly don't sacrifice the pigs. So now the whole temple is defiled. It's all outlawed. The Greeks have come in. They've looted the place. It's a mess. And, and pigs are being sacrificed to false gods in the temple. So that's around 200 years before Jesus. A few years after all this was happening, there was a, a revolt called the Maccabean Revolt. And uh, the Jews were successful in this revolt. Long story short, very short. They were successful. They rose up and they, they managed to get back the temple. Uh, and they cleansed the temple. 
and they rededicated it. Okay, so they rededicated the temple to God. So this is what this means here. They they reset apart the temple. They re-sanctified the temple to God. Okay, so how was that for history? Do you guys know? If I quizzed you, do you not understand the whole Maccabean revolt? Right. Uh, okay, so that was a very very uh, short uh, little section. There's, a, uh, there's an apparently a miracle that takes place during uh, the very first time when the, when the temple is uh, reinstituted and, and re-cleansed and rededicated. And uh, it's the menorah. We're not going to get into it, but that's why they have the menorah during this feast. And they light a candle every day during this feast. If you want to know more, you can go figure it out. Talk to John. Talk to me. Whatever. And, you, and we'll give you some more information. So this feast of Hanukkah, this feast of dedication, is a celebration over uh, the Greek oppressors. And it's the celebration of the rededication of the temple in Jerusalem and the restoration of true worship in Jerusalem. And here we have Jesus. Here we have Jesus, who John has been taking very great pains so far from John 1 to John 10 to reveal to us Jesus is the light of the world and he is the temple. He's the true temple. So they've been celebrating. We, we rededicated this temple to God. And uh, we're worshiping God the true way. And the true temple is walking along inside the temple. And the religious leaders come to him. So it's really significant. And just to show you how significant this is. Uh, we'll go down. We're going to skip. We're not supposed to do this. Uh, but we will skip this. And if you go down with me to verse uh, Verse 36. Do you say of him whom the Father sanctified? The Father set me apart. Okay? So you're sitting here celebrating this temple being set apart. I'm the true temple who God has set apart. Who God has sanctified for ministry. Okay? For, to restore true worship to, to Israel again. Okay? So I'm not supposed to do that, but, we'll, but we did it. So... Let's look, at, uh, let's look at this then. So the first little section, verse 24 to verse 30, Jesus claims that he is one with God. The, the Jewish people come up to him in verse 24, and they say this, How long do you keep us in doubt? How long do you hold us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us. And Jesus is like, I think I have. And now they aren't asking this question because they're really keen to worship him. They're not like, please tell us, are you the one? And he says, I'm the one. And then they say, and we believe. That's not what's happening here. They want to find some way to land him in trouble. They've been trying to kill Jesus since John chapter 5. So the moment he says, I am the Messiah, is the moment they're like, right, that's it. Uh, kill him. When, when I was growing up in Northern Ireland, uh, we would ask people if they supported Rangers or Celtic. Now, we weren't asking people because we wanted to know their views on football. Like, how much do you like football? Uh, We were asking them, because if you supported Rangers, you were Protestant. And if you supported Celtic, you were Catholic. And uh, so so Protestant people would walk around Belfast and say, you support Rangers or Celtic? And they would say, Celtic. And then they get beat up by the Protestants. And vice versa, that would happen. Sometimes, believe it or not, Protestants would put on Celtic tops and walk around Belfast and say, do you support Rangers or Celtic? And the guy, the Catholic guy, would look at the Celtic top and say, Celtic. And they would beat him up because they were Protestants in disguise, right? And this is what's happening here. These people are not interested in worshiping Jesus. They are interested in catching him and seizing him. And so Jesus answers, and he answers in four different ways. First of all, in verse 25, he says, I have been telling you this. I've been telling you from the start. 
From John chapter 5, I've been telling you who I am. And you've not been listening to what I have to say. I told you, and you do not believe. I've already told you who I am. And you refuse to believe in me. And then he says in verse 25 to verse 26, Not only have I told you, but I've been showing you who I am with my works. My works show you who I am. The signs that I've been doing in Jerusalem have been evidence that I am the one who's been sent from the Father. But you do not believe. In, in John chapter uh, 9, Jesus healed a blind man. A, a man who's, that's never happened. And they're all talking, this has never happened before. This has never happened before. Jesus opened the eyes of the blind. And in John 5, he, helped a, he miraculously made a, a man who could never walk, walk again. And in John 2, many miracles and signs were done in Jerusalem. And Jesus simply says, I've been telling you who I am, and my works have been declaring to you who I am as well. But he says in verse 26, but you do not believe. So verse 25, I told you and you do not believe. I've shown you, but you do not believe. So then he gets to verse 26 to verse 28. He starts talking about his sheep. The reason you don't believe is because you're not of my sheep, as I've already told you earlier. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. The reason you don't believe is because you're, you're not mine. You don't belong to me. And those who do belong to me, evidence they belong to me by listening to me and following me. They are mine and I am theirs. I am their shepherd and they are my sheep and I know them. But look what it says in verse 27. I know them and they follow me. They hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. Jesus is saying the evidence at this point in his life is for someone being the sheep of Jesus. Being known by him in this intimate way is that they follow him. There it is. They follow Jesus. And what does Jesus do in return of this, these people who follow him? I give them eternal life and they will never perish. They are those, these sheep that I give eternal life to and they are secure in that. It says in verse 28, neither shall anyone uh, snatch them out of my hand. There are those who have trusted in Jesus who are his forever only his. No one can snatch them out of their hand. I don't know what sin you've been committing this week or what, what, what things you've been dealing with in the last few weeks or months. And maybe there's someone in this room who thinks, I- I've believed, but, but maybe I didn't believe enough. Or I've believed and I was in, but maybe I'm out because of my disobedience. The Bible says once you're in, you're in. Once you're his sheep, you're his sheep. Once you're his child, you're his child. And of course, we, we evidence that by following Jesus. We don't follow him to get eternal life. We're given eternal life, and then we, we follow Jesus as a response to all that he's done for us. And again, those who are in him are secure forever. His forever, only his. So then we get to this next little section in verse 29 to verse 30. My father, my father who's given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. I and my father are one. Jesus is saying these sheep that are now mine have belonged to my father by faith. They belong to him. They're part of the the Jewish people who have trusted in God. If we go back to John 5, which is part of this great theme, they believe the words of Moses. They believe the prophets. The word of God is in them. 
They've trusted. And how do they evidence that trust in the Father? When the Messiah comes, they believe in the Messiah. They're already the Father's, and now he's given them over to me as the new creation uh, coming in. And look what it says. They were also secure in him as well. No one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand either. I love that. You're, you're doubly secure once you've trusted in Jesus. Not because you're a good person. Not because you're righteous. Not because you're wonderful. Or you've got a great personality. Or you're so dedicated and faithful. You're, double, you're doubly secure because Jesus says you are. And he says you're in my hand. And if we go back to the reading earlier in Isaiah 40. That's a strong hand. That's a mighty arm that holds us. And no one can pluck us out. The, God is greater than all. And so because he's, as Victoria's been teaching the kids, omnipotent, he's all-powerful. Who's able to take someone out of the hand of God? No one is strong enough. No one is able. If you're having a tug of war uh, with someone who's much stronger than you, you're over. It's lost, right? Uh, We've got Karen's dog, Charlie, and Charlie loves to tug at things. And you're pulling at him, and he's just like, and he's just having the time of his life. And it's a test of strength. Who can do it? And of course, I'm stronger than Charlie, so I always win. Can't let the dog win, right? Uh, And so, but I'm stronger. Who's able to pull us out of the Father's hand? Who's able to do that? Satan? Satan and his his schemes? Satan and his deceits? No, no one is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. Myself? Am I able to wiggle my way out? Come on now. Have you ever held a little toddler's hand as they try to wiggle out of yours on a busy road? You're going to let that hand slip? There's not a chance. And here's the almighty God who has his children in his hands. You're not wriggling your way out of that either by your sin or by your unfaithfulness or by your waywardness. You're in and you're in forever. And you know what that does? If we truly understand, a lot of people have a problem with this. Because they say, if you tell someone once they're in forever, then they'll just disobey. Because they're like, oh, I've got my insurance now I'll just do what I want. Like Victoria told me, uh, once we got our house stuff, our possessions and our house insured, that if I broke my laptop, like, I'll get a new one. I'm like, well, so if it, if, like, it starts slowing down, I'll just like, oops, <laughs> and get a brand new laptop. Like, that's how some people treat grace. Oh, if, if I'm in forever, if I'm his forever, if, if eternity is, is signed on the dotted line, then I'll just disobey and I'm still in. And Paul says in Romans, God forbid... God forbid, you're, you're free from that now. And someone who's truly understood eternal security, someone who's truly grasped how much you're loved and how unworthy you are to be loved, responds by saying, I am your sheep, I hear your voice, and I'll follow you. I'm doubly secure doesn't mean I'm going to be unfaithful. It motivates us towards faithfulness. But Jesus says in verse 30, I and my Father are one. And this is relating back to the Shema in Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And by saying, I am my Father, God are one, Jesus is claiming to be God in this verse. Okay? So we get to the next section, verse 31 to verse 38. Jesus is the Son of God. It says the Jews took up stones against him to stone him. This is just bizarre. Are you the Messiah? Yes. Kill him. Like, <laughs> I, I thought you wanted to know, right? And so now we see what's really going on in, in these people's hearts. They've, they've tried to kill him and, and they wanted to stone him to death in John 8. Now they want to stone him to death again here in John chapter 10. Why? Because Leviticus 4 verse 16 says, 
Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregations will certainly stone him. So it's the penalty for blasphemy is to be stoned to death. But Jesus responds, why are you trying to kill me? Like, what, what, what works did I do that's worthy of being stoned to death? And they respond, it's not your works, it's your words. You, verse 33, you being a man, make yourself God. You know, you get the cults. The cults say, Jesus never says, I am God. Man, if they would just read John's gospel properly. All the time he's like, he's saying this. I and my father are one. And they're like, he's claiming to be God. And Jesus doesn't say, no, 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 I didn't say that. He's like, yeah, I know, I did. And here's how I can claim that, right? Jesus very much said, I am God. So Jesus' response in verse 34 to verse 38. First of all, he says, examine what the scriptures say. Is it not written in your law? I said, you're gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken, then what about me? How can you not say this about me? So what is this, what is this about, this little section here uh, where it's, it's quoted in the law, uh, I said, you are gods. Well, this is coming from Psalm 82 and verse 6. I said, you're gods, and all of you are children of the most high. And this is an interesting little section of scripture. Basically, hum- most people believe, there's a few other ideas, but most people believe human judges are being called gods here, right? A human judge is being called a god by God. God is calling them gods and children of the most high God as well. Why is he doing that? Why is God calling these men gods? Well, the reason is because judges are exercising God's power and God's decrees over Israel, right? A judge in the Old Testament economy would have been saying, thus saith the Lord, and and, and speaking the word of God, and, and basically exercising the law of God. They were vehicles of God's justice and God's decree. So they're little, they're little small gods because they're like God. They're almost like God in the flesh, but not because they're, they're acting with his authority and acting according to his word. But basically, Psalm 82 is, is God saying, and you've been doing that all unjustly. You've misrepresented me, and I'm going to judge you for that. But Jesus is saying, hey, God called humans gods, and the word of God can't be broken. So what's wrong with calling me God, since I am? What's the problem then uh, with that? How much more can I be described as God and as the son of God, the, ch- the child of the Most High, without it being blasphemy, since I literally am God and the Son of God. And again, as we looked at earlier in verse 36, he says, I am the one who has been set apart for God. He's saying, just like the temple, you're celebrating this whole feast thing at the moment. I am, the, 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 I am that person. I am the set apart one. I am the dedicated one uh, who's been set apart for God to do this work, this Son of God. But he doesn't just say that. He doesn't just say examine the scriptures. Once again, he points back to the signs. He says, look at the signs in verse 37 to verse 38. If I do not do the works of my father, then don't believe me. Don't just believe my words. I made a blind guy see. I made a lame man walk again. And if I do do the works of the father, though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and believe that the father is in me and I am in him. Come and believe He's saying to these Jewish leaders, he's still inviting them to come. They're trying to kill him. And Jesus is saying, listen, just come and believe. 
Come and see what I'm doing. Come and get in on this. Come and get in on what I'm offering to you. Believe the Father. Believe that he has sent me. Believe that I'm in him and that he is in me. So then we get to this uh, last section, verse 39 to verse 42. And it's actually a conclusion of the whole of chapter 1 to 10, this little section. Uh, It's not just a conclusion of this conversation. It concludes the whole of John, chapter 1 to chapter 10. In verse 39, uh, instead of responding in belief, as Jesus has said, look at my works, look what I've done, look at the scriptures, look at what I'm saying. Instead of that, they try to seize him to have him killed. But once again, he escapes. He leaves Jerusalem now, and he returns to where he started his whole ministry back in John chapter 1. And what that's doing for us is it's creating a loop. It's creating a big circle, uh, a unit of what Jesus has been doing. So now he's going back over. He's in Jerusalem. Now he's going back over the river again to Bethany beyond Jordan, uh, where he was with Uh, John the Baptist in John chapter 1. And look what it says in verse 41 to 42. Many came and believed in him. So we have the unbelievers in Jerusalem. And you have the people coming out of Jerusalem. Over to be with Jesus. And believing in him. And saying we've been listening in verse 41. To what John the Baptist said. So what this is doing is it's putting you. The fact that it's mentioned John. The fact that it's mentioned this area. Is it's written this big unit for you. Um, to, to put that into your, your mind. So if we can kind of help you see it a little bit, the prologue of John's gospel, chapter 1, verse 1 to 18, sort of introducing all the themes. And uh, all the themes are in chapter 1 to 10. Like, they're all there. Everything that, that John mentions in verse 1 to 18 is, like, is opened up for us in John 1, or John 1, verse 19 to 10, 42. And what we see in that is the signs, the claims, and the reactions And then 11 verse 1 onwards, we have a little bit more, which we're not going to get into uh, this morning. But again, it gives us a natural circle for John's gospel. And it's a unit beginning and ending in the same place with the same people, Jesus and John. And it's a unit forcing you, what it's trying to do is it's forcing you to make a decision about Jesus of Nazareth. That's what it wants to do. So the prologue says uh, that you're not in because you're a Jew. You're not in because you've earned it by works. You're not in because you want to be in. You're in through Jesus. Those who believe in him. To those he gave the power to become the sons of God. And so, and then what happens for the rest of John 1 to John 10. Is it records what Jesus says and does. And it gives you people reacting to that. Do you believe or do you not believe? And at the end of John chapter 10. You have them not believing him. And you have these people going out and believing him. And it closes it. And it says to you, it forces you to hear this morning as you read this little section to say, which one will I be? Will I believe what the Old Testament says about the Messiah? Will I believe what Jesus has been saying about himself through this huge section? Will I believe what other people have been saying about him in this passage? When the woman of Samaria says, come hear a man who told me everything I did. Is this not the one? And John the Baptist saying, this is the one, this is the Lamb of God. Nathaniel, this is the King of Israel, you're the Son of God. Will I believe what these people say about him? And the question, will I believe the works that he has done? So if you're not a Christian in this room this morning, once again, Jesus is not a neutral person. You cannot be neutral with Jesus. You must accept him or reject him. And when you walk out this morning, you're accepting Jesus or you're rejecting Jesus. He's not a person you just say, well, think about this again sometime. 
You've walked out accepting him by believing in him, or you've walked out rejecting him, still under condemnation and death. But for those of us who are his, for those of us who've come to trust in him, once again we say this, you are secure in Jesus. You're secure in him. Jesus says that no one would be able to pluck those people out of his or his father's hands. And what has just happened? The religious leaders have kicked a blind man out of the community. Remember in John 9? They've kicked a blind man out. Or who was, I mean, he was healed again. But all he said was, I think he must be from God. And they kicked him out. And what Jesus is saying in John 10 is, they might be able to kick you out of the community, but they can't get kick you out of me. You're in me. And you're secure in me. And you're safe in me. And no one, not these religious punks, not the Romans, not the devil, not death, not sin, nothing and no one can take you out of my hands. Once you're in, you're in. If you're his, you're his forever through every danger, toil, and snare. And if you're not his, come and know him. Come and believe what Jesus says about himself and know eternal life. What it means to be a a sheep of the good shepherd. Amen. Well, we're going to...